Welcome to the Achieve Results Nutrition and Wellness Podcast, the ultimate guide to feeling and looking your best. Join me, your host, as we embark on an exciting journey to discover the power of nutrition, exercise, sleep, recovery, and mental performance. Get ready to be inspired, motivated, and uplifted as we uncover the secrets to unlocking your full potential and living your best life. Whether you're a fitness enthusiast, a wellness warrior, or just looking to improve your overall well-being, this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and let's get ready to elevate our performance together. Today, I'm speaking with Jeb Johnson. Jeb is a board-certified health and wellness coach who specializes in emotional eating, behavior change, and lives in Charleston, South Carolina, by way of Brooklyn, New York. Good old Brooklyn guy. And uh, he's currently down in South Carolina with his wife, Sarah, and his dogs, Bigsby and Georgia. So I am super excited to get Jeb on the podcast today. We're going to talk a lot about the emotional side of eating and the more habit-based side of eating, which is going to be super impactful for anybody who's listening to this, because that is probably the main thing is once you can get the mind on board, the results start to follow. Enjoy the show. Here's Jeb. Jeb, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. I'm super excited to have you on with today. So for everybody that's listening, can you just explain a little about yourself and a little bit about your coaching model and how you're currently helping people? Yeah, so I'm a board-certified health and wellness coach. I have been solely online for, God, I guess about five years now. I've been in the business, I'd write about 10 years. Before that, I was a personal trainer. I actually came about this world a little bit weird. I was a, uh, a musician and uh, a bartender. Then I became a hairdresser and I was a, a kind of worked in like celebrity and with a lot of models and things in New York City at salons and on Fashion Week and at magazines. And then I kind of got into, I got into training as an adult, not until my thirties. And my best friend and training partner at the time was the editor at Men's Fitness and Muscle and Fitness, Sean Heisen. And he just taught me a lot about uh, training. And then at some point, this like idea of, Hey, why don't you train people came up? And I was like, it's not even a real job. Is it like, it's not something you could do. And I kind of transitioned into it. And then as you grow and start to pay more attention to different things, I started to find that nutrition was a much higher leverage point for helping people change. And that's, so I got into nutrition coaching. And then I recently got board certified as a health and wellness coach because I felt that my practice had really moved beyond nutrition in that there's X's and O's in nutrition. You as an RD, you understand that the clinical side of nutrition in a depth that I never will, but that wasn't really where my interests lie. It was more in the behavioral aspect. And so health was a place that even though the term health and wellness, I think it's really muddied with all the crazy, weird stuff out there. It's actually the group that I have my certification through. They're certified by the medical board and it's really focused on behavioral adaptation. So that's really what led me to that. And that's what my model is today is I don't really consider myself a nutrition coach. I really work on a behavior modification with people and how to change their kind of lifestyles where nutrition is obviously a huge aspect. I look at what we do really truly as healthcare and healthcare adjacent. I think it was put really well by my friend, Nick Lambie, that like people see their doctor for a total of 15 to 30 minutes a year. And if you're, if you're a personal trainer with in-person clients, they might see you three or four hours a week. So the impact we can have is huge. And so that's, I think, obviously the kind of pillars that I look at are kind of the physical pillars, what we're eating, how our nutrition looks in conjunction with training, our mental or cognitive pillar, where we're really focusing on utilizing brain health, organization, work, and then this emotional pillar or spiritual pillar you can combine to 
depending on what the person's values are and how we can incorporate all those three things to create better health overall. That's awesome. Cool. I appreciate the background because I didn't know your path in here. It's it's a little bit of a left turn. Yeah, very weird. Everyone's <laughs> always confused, especially because I'm bald. So the hairdresser thing, they're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't yeah. always. I used to have a luscious head of hair. Yeah. Hey, I'd like to see a picture. I'm sure it was well-managed, but uh, yeah, man. So yeah. And I think that's one thing that interests me about you and about your practice is that you do, you come from that bodybuilding world, that strength world, right? And in a lot of cases, when we're talking about bodybuilding, it's very rigid, right? Mm -hmm. Macros, it's eat chicken, rice, and broccoli, and that's it. It's get the sets and reps done. Don't worry about the emotional side of things. I don't care if you're tired, eat the food. So I guess, how did you land on kind of the emotional side of nutrition and wellness? Is it something that you always gravitated towards and saw that as a, an area that needed to be focused on? Or has something led you down that path along the way over the last 10 years? It's funny because I was talking about with someone about this earlier. So I think it's probably contextual and it's probably a combination of a lot of things. For one, again, I mentioned that I was a musician. So I've been a songwriter. I've been a writer my whole life. I've been fascinated by human nature and what makes people tick. As a songwriter, my stories were always about people, about not, not real people, but these imaginary stories about why people do things and their motivation behind things. Then when I got into hair, obviously I was telling a story if I was doing a magazine cover or anything like that. But then I was also, I've always listened to people's li lives, like their life story, very emotionally tied in things, similar to, I mostly work with women. So we know how women, some men to an extent, I think a lesser extent, but we see more and more of it. A lot of people derive a sense of value from how they look. And so a woman's hair is very indicative of her. She feels like if her hair is done well, if she's put together, she portrays something in the world, and especially in New York. And you're a New York guy. Like it's a very, it's a very, very status driven place in a lot of ways. And then as I trans transitioned into this like fitness realm, again, I didn't I first started lifting at 33. I was always athletic. I played sports in high school. I was one of those people who I was always just, I lifted a little bit in high school, but I was fast and I was pretty athletic. So I just got away with shit without actually having to lift. And then I got older and I just, I wanted something to do. Now, let me also add this other big element that's probably the real reason I'm into it is I have a history of addiction and alcoholism. I went to rehab at 33. I had just taken my first jujitsu class before I went to rehab and I came out of it and I was like, I need something to help me to not drink and do drugs. Like, I, I don't care what it is. In lifting, I had bought before I went in, Zach Evanesh, Evanesh had a, an ebook, and in the back of it was a free copy of Jay Ferrugia's Renegade Diet. And I was basically like just intermittent fasting, butter and coffee kind of stuff. And I read that and then I bought one of his books and I was like, I'm just going to do this. And I just did it. I was about 145 pounds. I probably that year probably put on in my thirties, probably put on like 25 pounds of muscle. And I was like, this is cool. This is really cool. I continue to struggle with kind of alcohol and things, but I found this outlet though in lifting and also intermittently jujitsu throughout the years that... I didn't have other things. And I think what I started to see when I worked just in nutrition, that the X's and O's were fine for a very small amount of people. Yep. I happen to be one of those people. Just yep. tell me what to do and I'll do it. As long as I value the outcome. But I started to wonder how do other people do that? And I started to find also that as I worked with more and more clients, applying those X's and O's often led to an outcome that was pretty heavy in a lot of disordered eating. Sure. Yeah. And I, it's funny, we were obviously we were chatting for a minute before we got this thing started and talking about coaches or whatever that are 
that's their approach, right? Just do what I say, or you're doing it wrong. And obviously I think anyone who's been in this business for long enough, or, or maybe just someone who takes the time to get to know their clientele and puts a little bit of stock into who they are as a human being, you start to quickly realize it's like you said, X's and O's are great, but until whatever kids are screaming, bosses are yelling at you shit hits the fan. And then a lot of these emotional and mindset related things come into play. And I think for a lot of people, the mind drives the bus basically, right? It's like, that's yeah. the main thing that that drives everybody, right? So when the when the mind is sharp and when everything's on point, maybe you can do the macros and maybe you can just stick right to the plan, but that's probably not going to be the case the majority of the year. What are some of the tools you like to focus on with people just to make sure they are making improvements and I guess I'd be curious to know what your idea of improvement is for people, even in this a more emotional and mind, mindfulness-based approach. Yeah, I think obviously it's very contextual. I, it's, it definitely has become more of the person in front of me than I would love to come up with a system that just fixed everybody and that I could retire, right? We all would, man. But it's just, it's the more generalized I try to make something, the more holes it creates. And there's some basic things that, that again, I think that everybody, fo if everybody just focused on, again, everyone wants the sexy, crazy new thing, but if everybody focused on eating mostly whole foods, lean proteins, some refined carbohydrates, if they want at certain meals, but mostly vegetables and fruits and eat a plate and start to pay attention to their hunger signaling, lifted weights two to three times a week and got in a sufficient amount of steps each day, it things would probably be pretty okay. They might not be perfect, but again, Outside, I think the other aspect we have to acknowledge, too, is the unrealistic environmental standards that we place on what healthy looks like. I was talking to some, on a podcast the other day. I saw this Instagram video of this guy asking a girl if she likes dad bods, and he showed her a picture of Seth Rogen. She said, no. And then he showed her a picture of Daniel Craig from James Bond when he's coming out of the ocean. She said, yeah, that's the dad bod I like. And I'm like, that's your dad bod. That's your idea of a dad bod, this guy who looks like a Greek statue? You got to be, but that's, so I think that's also part of the problem is we have this expectation of what healthy is like six pack at like that point zero 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 one percent of the population that we see on Instagram. Yep. But that aside is I think it's those basics, like just basic exercise again, socialization, that's going to, I think all of these things on together almost takes care backdoors, the problems that a lot of us have. Fortunately, that isn't it's just not going to happen so instead i have to take more direct approaches so with the emotional stuff really what we focus on is dependent upon the person in front of you like you said some people can do macros there's i have some clients it's like we don't even we don't have to worry about it. i just i just throw numbers at them and, and they're fine no nothing other people the people that tend to really cling to those numbers that haven't seen progress either in terms of weight or health in 20 30 40 years they're clinging to those because it's a sense of control and it's a sense of trying to get something that they don't have in other parts of their life. So what we need to work on in, in my practice, what we tend to work on is I tell them is listen, weight loss can still be something that you're thinking of, right? But we just have to take it out of the realm of the focus because you've been staring, if it's the sun, you've been staring at the sun your entire life. And yet there's all these planets, there's all these stars, there's all these moons rotating around that actually do influence that but you've been ignoring them because all you're looking at is this other thing and so all the things that are actually influencing you you aren't paying attention to so that might look like emotional regulation techniques you know how can we better deal with stress tolerance there can be like things that don't seem like they may have any association like time management 
Like, how are you managing your time? A lot of my clients, like we go to a mechanical eating phase, right? Okay, you're gonna eat at X, Y, Z time because you've been dieting for 30 years. You, ha you have zero, you have no hunger signaling whatsoever. Right. You just don't, you don't know if you're hungry or if you're tired. And so you'll go, and the thing is you talk to anyone that's talked to a lot of you, I'm sure in your practice, you're working with people who are dealing with overweight and obesity and they're like, but I don't really eat that much. And if you followed them around, you'd watch them and they don't really eat that much until they do because they've just, they're so hungry because they haven't eaten all day or they're trying to resist. And then that's when we get a lot of the really disordered patterns of binge eating and hiding and a lot of guilt and shame that comes along with it. So it's a lot of that, but it's trying to figure out each individual, like where is it that they struggle? For sure. Yeah. And I'd like to get, because you brought this up, I'd like to get your take on this because I actually spent a week hiking through Arizona with my dad and my dad is literally like the most blue collar dude you'll ever meet, right? He's the every man or the every person and which I had a lot of fun just observing because I wouldn't consider like me or you like the every person. Like we're like, right. when it comes to like nutrition, obviously it's like, we're pretty aware of what's going on, pretty mindful of what's going on in our mouths, pretty regimented and routine where most people aren't. And like what you just brought up about, hey, I don't really eat that much. He's got whatever, not crazy weight issues. Oh, he's got a, been a little <laughs> overweight and some blood pressure as he gets older and whatever. All the standard stuff that people are going to deal with or whatever. And that was the one thing that, that really, I guess, caught my eye is exactly what you just said, right? Is that I think it's the unconscious, right? Yeah. It's these little things that people are doing throughout the day and it's totally unconscious to them. Like he would be like, well, I'm not a big breakfast eater, but then I'll see him grab a little bit of this, grab a little bit of that, <laughs> grab a little bit of that. I'm like, dude, you're eating breakfast. You're just not yeah. counting it as breakfast. It's right? not eggs and bacon, <laughs> but yeah, it's still breakfast. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's a big one where, you know, you, focusing on that unconscious, I think is huge and getting people more mindful. So I'd love to get your take on that. So let me ask you this. What you're did you blue collar? What did he do for a living? I'm guessing he's retired now, if not, or if he's uh, still working, but he's a digital sign maker, but he works in, he works for the city. So he works in like an okay. industrial shop, but he so does. He's like kind of in the shop. So I always look more towards, again, I'm a big movement based person, right? Because I just, so to your point that mindless eating, right? So there's a big thing that I talk about with a lot of people is there's this, this thought that is prevalent by 22 year old fit fluencers who live in their mom's basement that people who are overweight are lazy and they're hedonistic. And I'm like, actually the opposite, like they do, I want you to read the definition of the word hedonism because hedonic sense of food actually is not the problem. It's not that people enjoy food so much and they love the smell and the taste and the feel. It's that they don't even pay attention to the fact they're eating. They're mindlessly eating. And so that's where I think mindfulness. Now, I did a whole research presentation actually at our, friend, our mutual friend Ben House's place. I did a, a project and presented on is mindfulness an effective tool for weight loss. And with the research we have available, it's probably not, it, it probably isn't. I think it is a fantastic tool for weight maintenance, yep. but as a tool for weight loss, it's probably not gonna work very well. And that's just because the, as a tool, it's just, it's still not gonna be out, outperform hyperpalatable foods. Totally. But I think for weight maintenance, it becomes a lot more because I've had, you have this conversation all the time is, you ever been to a Dairy Queen? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So Butterfinger Blizzard is, I, I know it's not real ice cream, I don't, but there's something about it. It's like yeah. now, because there's one on, there's one on either 14th street or 8th Ave that I used to go to, <laughs> but I learned that I, and I remember I was dieting for a photo shoot and I, but there's always room after a workout. I could grab it. I would either grab a donut or I always grab something sweet after every workout, my post workout. But I learned that like I could eat a mini size or the kid size blizzard 
and have the same amount of satisfaction as the giant one and just not feel like shit afterwards. And that's something I don't think many people ever experience because it's just... Now, the reason I asked about blue collar is because as a movement person, I think, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think, and the book that actually we're writing currently is our argument to this, to testament to this, that movement might be our backdoor away from hyperpalatable foods. Okay. And it's just that the time commitment is more than most people are willing to put in. Yep. But because we start to see some hunger regulation signaling, hunger signaling regulation at around six to 8,000 steps, most people are not even getting enough steps throughout the day to even have normal hunger signaling. Yep. We found, I f- accidentally found the piece the other day that showed an ad libitum diet in a metabolic ward. So we're talking like full, fully controlled RCT here. And it showed that the high movement group and what we term high flux, meaning high input, high output, ad libitum diet could not even eat to maintenance, but they were getting like 34,000 steps a day. Ad libitum, they were in a deficit. You, now you switch it to the other side and the people with the low step count were 1,600 to 1,000 calories over. That's when I hear blue collar, I think about, and there's also the Bengali study, which is a great J-shaped curve kind of idea where it shows that people with the highest caloric intake, but the lowest that were most sedentary had the highest weight. But at the other end of the curve, the lowest weight people also had the highest caloric intake. But right. these were the guys who were carrying around like body weight. These guys weighed like 140 pounds or carrying around 140 pounds sacks of grain. Yeah. So there's this like whole movement thing that I'm a big champion of as well. It's just the realistic application of it becomes very difficult. But yeah, that's, but whenever I hear blue collar, I'm like, Ooh, cause I think that's the key, right? Everyone wants to talk about the obesity epidemic cause they want a singular reason yep. while hyperpalatable foods are absolutely a huge part of it. The lack of movement, I think is just as big a part regardless of what Ponser said in the last book I said. I won't go into that. But. <laughs> yeah, you don't think we you don't think we have that auto regulator? Because he's ta- because he's talking about people that have low energy availability. When you talk about the Hadza, they have to walk two miles to split a potato four ways. Like, <laughs> of course they're not burning a lot of calories. But is that gonna happen in a Western society? No, absolutely not. And his there's some of his own studies actually show the complete opposite of what Burns said. It, yeah. And it's a good point too, right? Like you said, like when energy availability is just not there, there's going to be an adaptation. To, yeah. If you're walking 20 miles a day, somehow the body's going to conserve energy, right? No matter yeah. no matter if you're in the bush out there or if you're just here walking around New York City and you're only eating 800 calories a day. I think that's where we run into the bottleneck with popular exercise modalities and that HIT is such a thing is that people that are trying to explain to them, like, that that 20 more workout, that's great. I'm glad you're getting that cardio and little resistance. But not to ram your parade, you still got to go out and probably get 12,000 steps. Yep. And they're like, why? But exercise is like, you probably just lowered your tailored daily expenditures all you did. Because that, you basically just told your body like, hey, real quick, I'm going to spend the next 20 minutes trying to kill you. And your body, that doesn't, your body, this doesn't make any sense. Why did this happen? So you're just going to, but there's energy conversation, con- conservation tends to happen. We're not sure how much or how often, but it, it doesn't make up for 23 hours of sedentary Totally. 100%. I got to agree with you on that too. I think that's the thing, right? It's just the movement is such a massive piece. And so what, what are some ways that you're counterbalancing or counteracting that with people? Because obviously now, now more than ever, dude, I sit at this, my kitchen table since yeah. for the last three years, many hours a day, especially with people working from home now, they yep. don't even got to get up and at least walk from their car to the office anymore. A lot of people are just sitting down in a home office directly beside their bed. 
So what are you doing? We're writing this book. We're writing this book on walking. We started writing it. I was like, okay, I got to practice what I preach. So I bought a walking treadmill for my house, like the treadmill desk. Within a week, I had to pretty much stop because I was getting, I went from whatever crap I was doing to getting like 14 or 15,000 steps a day. I had lost five pounds. I wasn't trying to lose weight. Like it was not part of the attention. My hunger signaling actually dropped. I was never hungry. I was like, oh, this is like bad. My, one of my writing partners, Dean, he had done the same thing. He had quit lifting, started doing jujitsu only, and then walking like 24,000 steps yeah. a day. He get he so him and Mike T. Nelson and I write this book and he gets on with this guys, I just can't get this I get over this sickness. I've been sick for a month and we're like, What are you doing? He's I'm walking like twenty five thousand steps a day and doing jujitsu every day. I was like, Maybe stop walking so much. Yeah. Literally, like within two days, he's better. Talk about it was he was literally had red S. He like gave himself an energy availability issue through output. And this is a guy who was two forty five when we left Costa Rica when COVID hit and he was down to two oh five within a year. Because just walk and he stopped, he stopped lifting too. He lost a lot of muscle, but he's yeah. still jacked. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's cool that you've actually been able to put it into practice for yourself too. <laughs> yeah. And I, I moved during COVID. I left New York. My wife and I working from 600 square foot Brooklyn apartment was a little too much. And we moved down to South Carolina. For me personally, it's just what we walk outside. If you follow my social media, I hate this discipline narrative that is spun everywhere. But if you look at my day, I wake up at 5 a.m. I go to jiu-jitsu at 6 a.m. Mind you, I own my own business. There's no reason I have to get up. I can sleep till noon if I want. But there's a really, like, the training room is really strong at 6 a.m. It's a lot. Of, it's tough. I like being in there. So I get home. I come home. I shower. I do my little Instagram post. I eat my breakfast. And then I get on my computer and I work. And then I go and I lift. And I come home and I work some more. And then I cook dinner, go for a walk. Come home. So my like day looks, it's very regimented, but I make it a point to get out and walk for a variety of benefits. I think it's so multifaceted, but I do that. And for clients who maybe don't have that option for the walking treadmill at home, it's little things like it's it, everyone thinks, oh, I need to walk an hour. No, you go walk for 15 minutes. Again, look at New York City, like New York City has more. I used to on the way to the gym, grab a halal cart meal that i'm pretty <laughs> sure was like 3500 calories but it's hard to keep weight on in new york because you're walking 15,000, like less so since covid but pre-covid everybody was oh. getting fifteen thousand steps a day Absolutely. everybody yep. and you just don't you just don't see as much weight issues like i was in amsterdam i got i love going to europe so we go to europe a few times a year and we were in amsterdam i was baffled at how lean everybody was they all drink a lot yep. of people still smoke, which is wild, but there's, I believe there's, I believe the city itself is like 400,000 people and there's 850,000 bicycles. Yeah. Everybody bikes. That's what I was everybody saying. bikes, everybody walks, but they're not particularly health conscious, quote unquote. They don't really, it's not really something that's part of their culture. We're obsessed with health and we have all the problems. And we don't have any of the like inborn solutions. But so to me, and again, this is just anecdotal. It's not, but to me, the places that I see that have more social programs in place and more, more preference towards doing things like walking or biking over getting in our car and driving everywhere. And also, even though they eat high calorie foods, probably a lot more, a lot less hyper palatable foods. Like yep. French fries. Yeah. French fries are high in calories. It's like a treat. Like, it's just that things are viewed a little differently. Totally. Yeah. And so, yeah, and I've spent a fair amount of time over there. I used to go over and play in a hockey tournament over there every summer in various places in Europe. 
and it's not perfect. It's a lot of pastries at breakfast. It's, oh, yeah. it's, it's bread with deli meats and cheeses. And, and so that's the thing, right? But it's nothing's, you're not getting a croissant the size of your face. You're getting, that's a big part. Yeah. <laughs> getting a mini croissant. You're getting a little slice of toast with some deli meats and a nice slice of cheese. So there is definitely that, that moderation aspect that's just baked into the culture. Right. Yeah. Um, meals are a lot more. You're not going and getting a meal that you can't finish at a restaurant. Meals Never. are more manageable, things like that. Yeah. And I think that's huge, but that's also baked into their society and their environment. And that's something that you grow up with from day one kind of thing is just, yeah, we're just, we just, I feel like it's just one of those things where just not known for drastically overeating or overconsuming mm -hmm. or things like that. And maybe that's just my opinion, but well, it seems to be a something. I think that word you put in there that's so important is environment. Because we, again, in, in, in the States in particular, we love the personal responsibility narrative. And yes, personal responsibility is going to hold an important part in your day. It isn't going to come close to the environmental weight. And we come back to what are the tools that we can do? And that's, we have to try to manipulate our environment because as you know, if you try to live in that environment out there, and it's one thing for you or I, like I'm sure you're pretty, you're a pretty tall guy. Yeah. yeah right. Six, six, four. Yeah. Oh, you're six four. So you're huge. Okay, I'm five eight. I'm barely even qualified as like adult male. And you were and you played pro hockey, right? Yeah. yeah. So you're an athlete. So listen, you can probably go out and you can probably eat and you can probably get away with a lot more. I'm five eight, two hundred and five pounds. I can get away with a lot. Yeah. If you're a five foot two woman, forget about it. Yeah. Forget about it. Like you're like you have one meal out a week. That's your maintenance. Totally. Yep. And but that's not how anyone views it it's just oh this is just food and it's like you said it's like you're almost predisposed to eat so how do we manipulate an environment again like treadmill desk right. taking phone calls while you're on putting your headphones in taking a phone call and walking around your building i had one client who set the printer for her computer at the printer that's like down the hall rather than the one in her office it's they sound like dumb little things but they add up yeah. part of why i tell people i have not i have yet in my i've coached probably 2000 people in my life. I have yet to encounter someone who actually is not drinking enough water. Like, it's like yeah. uh, fitness is obsessed with water. <laughs> I like, nobody, everyone like, what color is your pee? They're like clear. I'm like, you're fine. You don't need to drink 64. But if they drink a lot of water. They got to pee a lot. And that's one more opportunity to get up and walk down. It used to be like, used to be like people would be like, Hey, I'm going to go have a cigarette once an hour. Nobody had a problem with taking 10 minutes out of every hour to smoke a cigarette. But now, like leaving your desk to do something for yourself is like taboo. Yeah, totally. So like, you, and I think that's when you said environment, it's just like, that's the thing is yeah. how do we manipulate that environment? And then we don't have to use as many of these emotional regulation tools, which that's the goal. Agreed. Yeah. And I think a big one too is like you said, with environment and just that kind of tip got me thinking when you said people don't want to leave their desk and things like that is. I think a lot of times too, we, we've given up like being a proponent of our own health, right? Like we feel like we can't leave our desk. We feel like we have to do this. We feel like we have to stay late. We feel, but if we actually stand up to ourselves or for ourselves and we go to say to a boss, Hey, I'm going to get up every two hours. I'm going to go for a 10 minute walk. I don't think most people are going to get fired from their job. Obviously you're not going to leave in the middle of a task and go for a walk. But at the same time, I think there's more leeway in the world that we than we give ourselves and we kind of lock ourselves down into this. Oh, I just got to be, I got to be at my desk for 12 hours or I'm not being productive where it's like, 
there's definitely ways throughout the day where people can certainly get a little bit more health conscious and just get up and take that walk and stuff. And not only is it going to help with some weight maintenance, but it's certainly going to help with productivity. It's going to help be more alert. It's going to help with your mindset, right? And that's going to get blood flowing in a certain direction as well. So I think that's one huge thing is we can all take our healthy lifestyle into our own hands a little bit more and stand up for it a little bit. Yeah, I really like that. I wrote that down while you were talking, actually, this idea of personal advocacy. People hire coaches to be their advocates. But yeah, you're right. And I'll talk a lot about that and the idea of setting boundaries. But this is almost like a proactive boundary setting. Like instead of setting boundaries, hey, I'm not setting boundaries. I'm trying to create the path that I want. So I love that. I think that's awesome. Yeah, I've had people use it before and it works. Whose who's boss is going to be such an asshole that they're going to be like, absolutely not. I want you at that desk all 12 hours. If you get up, you're fired. Well, there may be the odd person. I think 99% of us are going to have a boss that's, oh, you're trying to get a little healthier and you want to take a walk for 10 minutes? Sure, go for it. So yeah, I think that's a huge one. Was it three things that you like to focus on with everybody? I think it was pillars. It's just, it's just holistic health. It's emotional, physical, and cognitive. That's really it. For sure. Okay. And so in terms of cognitive, I'm curious, do you have any tasks like cognitive wise to get people in a little bit better mindset to make these things happen for themselves? I think the cognitive task kind of really comes down to what people like. Like, I think having some kind of cognitive challenging task throughout the day, whether for a lot of people it's work, but it's also creative tasks, right? Like I play guitar, like that's an outlet. I always encourage someone to, to try to learn new things. You, when you, we talked, the people I work with, they're the typical thing they fill out in their questionnaire is I just feel stuck. And it's like feeling stuck is a very like amorphous idea, but I find that people who are constantly like when i do a little strength finder with all my clients for me personally my number one strength is like love of learning i don't necessarily have to deep dive into everything there's certain things i will but i just like to learn new stuff jujitsu for me even though that's a physical activity is extraordinarily cognitive because it's all about problem solving it's all about like real time like how do i deal with this situation it's also about Emotionally too, it's also about calming your mind, not being scared when someone's trying to choke the life out of you. Like a, that's a, that's not a normal thing, but it could be any, it could be taking a pottery class, taking a, learning a new language. When the people work with me, like I have an emotional eating course where I walk them through a lot of skills from particularly dialectical behavior therapy, but from some other kind of different uh, types of actions to help them. And so it can really be anything, reading, listening to podcasts, doing Sudoku. Like I, I feel like those things are, they're not encouraged. We don't encourage people to like, so you're either work, you grind work or or sit and veg in front of the tv so there's, and there's a time for that like i watch an hour of tv every night like i like tv do something else learn something totally right. yeah absolutely and are you using that as more of a stress management tool or just some way to take your mind off food i don't like i don't really think of things as like necessarily a way to take someone's mind off food so my entire process, my entire thought process of what the pe most people I work with, at least. And again, I always like to preface with that because I'll have conversations with other fitness professionals and they're like talking and I'm like, you have to understand my messaging is directed at who I work with. I was like, this might not have anything to do with your clients. So like, don't take what I'm saying is like some kind of gospel truth. Like it's just observations I notice of people that I work with. Your clientele might be totally different and what I do might not work at all. But so I, my focus for most people is like the food is really just a byproduct of other stuff. It's not even like taking their mind off food. It's taking their mind off obsessiveness. It's taking their mind off compulsive behaviors. It's helping them to redirect that energy. A big process that I'm still mapping out in my model, my model changes every few years. And now I'm in this 
place. And But a big bedrock of that now is removing pathology from even behaviors, right? We all aim to, to stop pathologizing food, right? There's no good or bad foods. Yet we have no problem saying this is a bad habit. This is a bad this. We developed that habit for a reason, right? We develop when people are maybe binge eating, have binge eating disorder, they develop that not because it's a bad thing. It helped them to cope with something else. Most people, I think most people are dealing with some type of trauma response, right? Life is crazy. Like everyone's got something. And I say trauma. I always like to differentiate. Like trauma doesn't have to mean big T, it can mean little T, right? It doesn't have to mean like I caught a shrapnel from an IED. It could just be like Man, I, maybe the worst thing that ever happened to you is you fell off your bike when you were eight and you, your parents weren't around and you felt abandoned. Okay, fine. That counts. That could be screwing you up. Who knows? Not that we, I don't deal with people's past trauma, but we understand that maybe you developed this style of eating to protect you from these other things. And so once I started looking at that, now it's not about stop thinking about food. It's about, hey, like, what is it about food that, that you're gaining? What is it about turn, grabbing the pack of Oreos, going in the closet and eating all of them? Because you're upset afterwards. It leads to guilt and shame. There's something that this had to have done for you at some point. And now if we can just redirect that energy into something, because you don't, you have skills now to deal with those issues, right? You don't need to eat Oreos, but that's what you've been doing for 30 years. So it's a fallback. So how do we, and so I always think about these things less as distractions. Now I do use distraction techniques. That's more acute, but more as like, how can we start to do other things? How can we utilize positive energy, this energy, whether it's negative or positive, into something that is going to be fulfilling and help you? Totally. Yeah, like that habit is no longer serving that person anymore. That's the great way to put it. It's not serving you anymore. And like you said, in the past, it may have, may have created comfort or created this or created that, but it's no longer doing that. It's only leading to more discomfort at the end of the day. So yeah, just getting in there and yeah, getting behind the curtain a little bit and starting to think, yeah, why is it that you see this all the time with people, right? Start to key in on this, right? I had one guy in particular that he's just an easy example. He had a stressful job, right? And every time he had a hard day, that signified to him on his walk to the ferry, he got to stop at Shake Shack. Because he had a hard day, he wanted his burger, he wanted his fries and his shake, because that was his coping mechanism for the stress. And that was the way he had developed, okay, hey, this can, whatever, make me feel better at the end of the day. But now that he's trying to make these lifestyle changes, he's trying to experience some weight loss and things like that, it's no longer serving that stress management anymore. So then it becomes about getting under the hood a little bit and determining like, okay, what are some other ways where I can still, and actually he, I think he went to martial arts as well. He got mm -hmm. big into martial arts, but starting to find other ways where you can cope with these stressors in your life. But if the identification part is huge. But if that fairy's taking him to Staten Island every day, then I know I has to cope. That's a, that's a rough one. <laughs> it was Brooklyn. He, the guy was set up pretty In nice that case, he's okay. All right. Yeah. He's going over to the, that North Brooklyn Heights. He's probably okay. No, but like, sorry, that was a New York joke. <laughs> but yeah, and I really think that it's such a great point because again, I've never dealt with weight issues, but alcohol was my thing. And so it was like, same thing. I'd have a day and I would just, it was like being pulled by a tractor beam. I'd get out of work and I'd go and I'd grab a bottle of vodka and I'd chug it on the way into the subway. And that was just what I did. And it was how to cope, right? But at the end of the day, I was like, man, this is miserable. I don't want to be doing this. And that's, the, I think the big thing that people miss when they don't pay attention to the emotional side is there like people are like, just stop doing it? I'm like, I don't think you guys understand. I was like, this is not even a conscious decision. It's just something that happens. But to see a guy like that, like, again, this guy, you, you want to hear this. Oh, it's discipline. It's willpower. I don't know if this guy can afford to live in a place in Brooklyn Heights. I'm guaranteeing he's pretty disciplined in a lot of other areas, right? Yeah, exactly. 
And yeah. that's my thing is like, I deal with people who are like CEOs, like most of my clients have at least some advanced degree idea with PhD. I deal with, I have a lot of clients who are PsyDs, like who specialize in behavioral psychology that want help with how to change their behaviors when it comes time to, when it comes around to food. And it's not a lack of discipline. It's just hard. It's just hard totally. for some people. Yeah. Absolutely. And do you, this is going to be an impossible question to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> do you have any kind of an insight into that? Like, why is it so hard for some and not for others? There's an environmental factor. I think, again, a big part of all, oh, it's so complex, but yeah. I tend to have to look at it in terms of socioeconomic status as well. Like when we're talking like lower end of the socioeconomic status, obviously we're just talking about like a time constraint. We're talking about income. We're talking about food deserts. We're talking about all these things of just being like basically just fed calories, like very cheap, very empty, very calories. Now we start talking about people that probably you and I work with and probably most of the listeners here. Again, unfortunately, the barrier to entry to fitness is money in a lot of ways, but there is still an overweight and obesity problem. People at the higher end of the socioeconomic spectrum with them. I find that it is this type a hyper achiever, John Wayne kind of thing of no, everything in my life that I've gotten by working harder, I just got to work harder. And that is the kiss of death because you can work as hard as you want, but if you're having a compulsion or you don't have coping mechanisms in place and kind of talked about this idea of skills, this is where that all developed for me is why are these people so good at all these other things? Yep. And then not at this one part of what I do is a strength assessment. DIA character.org is what I use. And I'll usually look through it and I'll talk to him and I'll say, Hey, are you able to use these strengths in your work? And so I was like, yeah, man, I do this. I X, Y, Z all the time. How about with your relationships with others? Oh yeah, totally. Like my, 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 my wife is awesome. My coworkers are cool. My friends, we have so much fun. And I'm like, okay. And how about your relationship with yourself? And it's always just crickets. And they're like, oh yeah, I don't use any of these. And it's like, so you don't use any of your strengths when you're talking to yourself, like, but you try to use all these weaknesses. And the majority of my people, self-regulation is actually at the bottom of the list. Now that could be self-selecting because they're thinking about food stuff while they're taking the test, but it doesn't matter. It's like we, that's, I don't mess with people's weaknesses because I think it's a waste of time. That's the one I do. Cause I do believe that through work and through developing skills that we can actually become better at this thing called discipline. Ne you might never be great at it, but I've, I truly do believe that people can increase their ability to regulate behaviors just by having greater skills and more confidence in themselves. Yeah. 100%. I think that's huge, man. And that's, that's actually, that was the next question I was going to ask you too, is about that skill development aspect, right? Because I don't know, man, I just think the longer I'm in this field, and the more people you work with and speak with, that kind of seems to be the big one for me, right? It's that skill development. And I think the understanding that people need to develop skills in this area. I don't think this is, it's like everybody understands they need to develop whatever, go to school, get your education, go to get your job, do your training, develop all these other skills and other aspects of life. But I just feel like there's a disconnect in that skill development between like personal development and nutrition, yeah. wellness, all that stuff, lifestyle, right? So we kind of were talking before off the air about like these going to these conferences and things. And it's not really about coming out with this big, like aha moment, but it really is about meeting great people. Like again, I, part of me wishes I could go back to 97 and just have a pager and like a answer machine and none of this, yeah. but I do really value the internet. Like we met because of Instagram and because like 
Saladino. Yeah. And like, I started, I was like, oh, I would never, yeah, maybe we would have met in New York or something, but I probably would have never come across your stuff, but I gain a lot of value from it. So I'm like, oh, sweet. And then we get to have this conversation. Yep. So my friends groups, and I'm always having these kind of conversations with people. What I started off in developing my practice, I use a lot of skills from this thing, dialectical behavior therapy. And so it's a lot of like distress tolerance, mindful, emotional regulation, interpersonal relationships. What are these skills we can do to develop that? And I didn't really think about skill development. I just was like, oh, this is my back door because it's not therapy, but we can start to include some of these things that show a lot of benefit for people without talking about, oh, like, how's your, how is, how did your mom treat you when you're 12? Like, that's not my, that's not my scope. It's not, I can't help people with the past. I can only help people with today and forward. But I found these skills could allow them to do these things. And my good friend, Dean, he loves to send me things from like Jocko and David Goggins just to piss me off because he knows I, <laughs> I can't stand it. And the best thing, like as good friends do, he trolls me and goes, bro, you do the same thing. He's like, you're just not hearing their message. And I'm like, shut. So finally, you got to read this book, Do Hard Things. And I'm like, I hate stuff like that. He's going to listen. And it's actually this guy, Steve Magnus. And it's actually totally in line with exactly what I do. It's not like this macho thing. And then it made me start questioning my biases. And I'm like, man, like actually these things, Goggins, they, I don't like the delivery, but a lot of what they're saying does jive with what I do. It's just like, I take a much softer sounding approach <laughs> and I started to realize, and then I heard a podcast with John Danaher, who's a jiu-jitsu coach and you, or he was in New York now he's in Austin. And uh, he said, people were like, how do you guys always have this winning mentality? They have so much confidence. So you guys work a lot on mindset. He's like, we've never worked on mindset. He's like, I think mindset work is bullshit. He's my guys have such good skills that they walk into a match confident. And when you have confidence, it's not confidence. You can have all the confidence you want in your brain. If you don't have the skills to back it up, it's gone the second you, you hit the mat. Yep. And so I started thinking about that. And I'm like, we give people these like actually high level skills, right? We tell somebody like count macros. Yeah, that's a total high level skill. Like 99% of the people in this world don't know how to do that. Yeah. And we're like, oh, yeah, we just throw that out there, people. And because it was like easy. Yep. None of us really thought about it. And I'm saying this from a place of someone who did this for years. And then I'm like, wait, like what other skills could we build with people because the other thing is like at this high level skill you would see a ton of results with people who'd never done it but then they would finish and they didn't have the actual skills underneath it and it, they just gain all the weight back and it's very rare that i see long-term successful weight changes from people who saw great changes from doing six months on my macro plan yeah. but if you develop all those other skills alongside so that kind of has been the development of this idea of like skills and like how we can develop those and just taking that person and being like, okay, where are you deficient? Again, like most people, it's like most people, the one don't love tracking for people that have a long history of dieting and things, or at least tracking, like, but people think that means I'm anti-tracking and I'm like, no, everybody tracks, everybody tracks. They're just not to pulling out a scale. Like, hey, some people say, like, I just want you to eat three full meals, nutritious meals. I don't care what's in them. You've been dieting your whole life. Don't tell me you don't know what four ounces of chicken breast looks like. You probably know it better than I do. You've been obsessing about it for your entire life. Yep. You know what a couple cups of vegetables looks like. Let's do that. And then just, or, hey, I want you to, before you eat, assess your hunger. And then after you're done, assess it again. Oh, I didn't, I don't feel hungry. I'm like, okay, you're going to eat anyways. 
because that's what we're gonna have to do to get you back but so there's things like that right that's the kind of skills but then there could be it might be someone who's a total newbie i don't even know what macros are and it's like oh actually okay this is actually a very valuable conversation to have because you can start to understand why some foods will be more filling than others and why some foods are going to be better suited for your goals depending on what they are and, uh, and that's an opportunity. So yeah, I just think it's, and that's where as coaches, I think filling our toolbox up with as many different skills for us as well is super helpful. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny. I used to, I used to refer to stuff like portion sizing and just being, like you said, like assessing hunger before a meal and being more mindful and understanding, okay, maybe incorporating, like knowing what proteins are and knowing that incorporating more of those into a meal, as opposed to just having a big plate of rice or pasta or something like that is going to be more beneficial. I used to call those like basics, but now I'm referring to them as like the fundamentals because dude, like talking about higher level skills, even if you're one of those people who weighs, measures, tracks everything down to the last detail all the time, you're going to be outside of your house at some points. You're going to have to stop and eat on the run. You're going to be at a restaurant. And as much as you want to think that you know exactly what that meal is composed of, you don't. And that's where fundamentals for me come into play is like, Probably 50-50s, even if you're like one of those people who's hardcore on, on your meal tracking and stuff. It's like a lot of the time, especially summertime, vacations, barbecues, whatever, it's, man, things are going to be out of your control. So what are you going to, you got to have those fundamental skills to be able to build, okay, here's how I can go about making a plate. I can focus on my proteins. I can do more vegetables. I can make my intake of these things that I know are higher fat or higher, more hyper palatable or whatever. And those are, to me, those fundamental skills that yeah, I think a lot of people want to skip over and they just want to do, okay, well, just tell me how many, mac- tell me my calories. I just want to eat 1800 yeah. calories and I just want to do this. And it's like, all right, let's take a step back because we, again, when you don't know how many calories you're eating, you're going to have to understand how to eat in a way that's going to be beneficial to your goals. Yeah. Cause then if you do weigh and measure everything, but you don't have those fundamentals, like you're actually not learning anything. You're just creating external constraints that keep you within the borders. But like you said, the second you go out, one of the best lessons I, cause I had like, I have a weird rule, like that I shouldn't say rule. Cause but I guess it kind of is like, if I'm actually worried about, I'm, I'm not very worried about my weight. Like it stays where it is if I don't do anything. Like, but if I'm actively trying to gain weight or lose weight, then I pay more attention. And if I'm trying to maintain on the road or if I want to lose a little, if I'm in like a weight loss phase, I just kind of have a basic rule. Like, okay, if I'm having more fats, I just have less carbs. If I have more carbs, I have less fat. It's just because it balances all out. And so if I'm going to eat barbecue, like I'm going to probably not do the mac and cheese with it. I'll just (laughs) eat a pound of meat because that's what I'm there for anyways. But like in the same aspect of I come back from the gym and I eat a bunch of chicken and rice, I just like to have a little bit lower fat because I'm. I probably obsess a little bit over like meal timing that probably doesn't matter, but we all have our things. Totally. But then, like you said, if people aren't paying attention to like even understanding how much they eat, then they're not even going to have that, that understanding of that fundamental, right? That's just, oh, higher fats can lead to higher calories and or higher carbs, but you can real simply adjust that. But again, I think people have to understand what the foods are made up of most people don't understand that yeah brisket is like a it's a lot of fat yeah it's not much protein peanut your scoop of peanut butter it's not your protein source like sausages right like sausages hot dogs oh i'm having hot dogs though and i'm like i know that looks like meat but like it's it's depressing i love hot dogs like i don't eat them but because i do on occasion but it's not a very common thing because again like the problem with being in the nutrition world is it's the matrix thing right like, because it's, i know what everything's made up of now yeah. so i don't get to have the oh well, it's out of sight out of mind it's, no i'm making a conscious decision like i'm not necessarily going to deny myself but like i know what i'm doing totally. 
hundred percent. Yeah, exactly. You're not going in blind to anything. So that's actually speaking of that, like the conscious decisions and things like that. I wanted to touch a little bit on some intuitive eating and stuff today. I'm not sure if that's something, obviously I'm assuming you practice a lot of that with your clientele. I guess my question around that is, do you think that intuitive eating is going to be a useful tool for somebody who is kind of shown that they can't eat intuitively throughout the course of their life. Do they need some kind of a control aspect first? An understanding of what maybe a better portion size, a better built out, building a better plate is like for them before they move to an intuitive approach? Or how would you handle that? So I have to start off saying I do not utilize a trademark intuitive eating practice at all. Like actual... But so I think an interesting thing is I think there's a big hurdle here first about what intuitive eating is. And I have read the intuitive eating book because I, and I do think that it's a very valuable tool. But the issue that people are looking at, and, oh, well, you can't eat intuitively for fat loss. And it's no, but that actually is nobody should be using intuitive eating for fat loss. Right. The problem, right? It's meant to restore a relationship with food. And so there's a couple of things that that I find very powerful from intuitive eating that I actually utilize with almost all my clients. And that first piece really is this unconditional permission. And I think where this gets lost is that people in the nutrition field, like you can't just tell someone they can eat whatever they want. I'm like, but guess what? They can. (laughs) You're fucking America. You can pick you. There's 85 different types of cereal in the cereal aisle. You can literally walk in any store. You can eat whatever you want, whenever you want. Me telling myself I can't is first of all, I'm just lying. Oh, I can't have this. Yes, you can. But if you say, I can't have this, and then you break, then it's guilt and it's shame. If you say, I can have whatever I want, I'm choosing not to because it doesn't fit in with this value or goal. That's a piece of agency. That's a powerful thing that that all of a sudden you are taking some accountability in it. So the funny thing is the people that fight against it so hard is generally the personal responsibility crowd. But intuitive eating is actually creating a lot of personal responsibility because you are giving yourself unconditional permission. So it's interesting that the people that, that push against it, it's actually doing exactly what, because the other side of the coin is telling people they can't have things and that's removing agency. That's saying, okay, that's removing the personal responsibility. So I think that's a big piece. Um, I think it's also important to note that intuitive is not inborn, right? So people are like, oh, this person can't eat intuitively as they could at one point, right? You're confusing what they do naturally with what they've been conditioned to do since maybe they're five years old. So if someone's funded by cupcakes and like ho-hos or every time they're sad, their mom gives them a chocolate cake or every time as a reward, they get an ice cream, their intuition has been skewed. So it's, so now it's a matter of like, how do we reframe that now? Again, it's, I think it's really important to note the difference between disordered eating and eating disorders, right? Eating disorders need to be clinically dealt with. That's not, I don't deal with people in active eating disorder. I do deal with a lot of people that have gone through recovery and they might still have some disordered eating patterns or a history of it that we don't want to jump into. Now, the interesting thing is coming out of that from a clinical standpoint, one of the first things that people do that they do with anorexia or bulimia is, I think we were talking about earlier, is this idea of mechanical eating, of setting alarms and setting timers to eat. There's nothing intuitive about that, but we're restoring a pattern to start to understand where hunger signaling comes from. Because if someone has been using external constraints their entire life, they don't have any normal hunger signaling. So we might have to use these mechanical approaches to restore that. And then we come into the intuitive. Now, where I think possibly there's a mistake that happens in a lot of ways, someone says, oh, this person has disordered eating patterns. Let me throw 
this like macros xyz thing at them and then once we get them to the right weight then we'll work on this intuitive approach whereas i believe anyone with this disordered eating patterns probably needs to work on their relationship with food first and then we can now the things you mentioned like building a healthy plate things like that that falls in this gray area that i think is super safe right. like i think someone with a disordered eating pattern learning to have a healthy plate and starting to recognize hunger signaling i feel like that's all wrapped together i think where people miss it is they try to go to this rigid and the problem being is if it fits your macros is flexible dieting that everyone turns into rigid restraints somehow so i think that's around but i think with what you're describing and i really like my friend gab fandaro puts it rather than intuitive eating is like informed intuition where it's like you have the information you understand these things but you're trying to create a more intuitive approach to how you hit your day rather than I have 23 grams of carbs left. What can I eat that fits that? Yeah, no, I, I totally understand that. And that's the big thing. Yeah. I think it's that I would say that if you're, you can intuitively be more, just being more mindful and generally aware of what's going on. You do become a little bit more intuitive in terms of what's going on, but I am a believer, like you said, some of that mechanical eating, I do think because of the way, whether it's whatever, fasting has been a big one for a lot of people recently. And it does, it screws up a lot of things for people where it's all, I'm not hungry until 3 p.m. Yeah. now. It's like, And it could be great for another person. That's what's so yeah. wild about it. It's like, so I think intermittent fasting in probably not great for a lot of people, especially the disordered eating. But at the same time, is like, what if it's, I really love this, Ben talks about this a lot. It's like, you know, what if it's a mother who is trying to break the cycle her mom got her into all this eating disorder pattern and she's trying to break the cycle with her own daughter and so she really wants to make sure that she's eating not weighing or measuring or paying too much attention to caloric intake at dinner in terms for in availability for her to be able to eat a little more at night she has and she she fasts until noon and then has a like lunch and then maybe has dinner with the family so all of a sudden there we took this little thing that i might have a bias against turned it on here and went oh shit yeah no that's a really great point so i think that contextual piece is like why again it really comes down to why are we doing things right what's the intent and i think that's the problem with the internet and instagram is to get eyes you have to create this like black and white dichotomy but like everything we like like why is intuitive why is intuitive eating have to fight against meal plans because if you put someone into a metabolic ward or someone who is active eating disorder guess what they're getting a meal plan yeah <laughs> so it's like but with the internet we have to create these dichotomies again again with diet and anti-diet you can watch the i'm watching the osempic thing like i'm watching the the anti-diet crowd rail against how this is fat phobic to give people something that helps them lose weight and then i have the other the diet crowd who's this is a cop out and you're just being lazy and i'm like <laughs> you guys actually are agreeing on something for t and both of you sound like assholes but like yeah. how is this possible it's yeah. crazy yeah it's it's a wild world out there for sure but and like you said I, I think to me this is like my favorite part of just being in the nutrition industry is like i always say this is i enjoy putting together the puzzle right because obviously every person is going to be yeah. individual and to me i look at it as it's a little bit of a puzzle you want to put it together right you want to help people but 
And that's the thing I think that's important to understand. And even I can get lost in that sometimes where it's like, everything's a tool. It doesn't, it really doesn't matter. Nothing's inherently great. Nothing's inherently, or most things aren't inherently great. Most things aren't inherently bad unless you take them out of control or whatever, but they're all a tool that can be used in, in different opportunities, different aspects. And Maybe even with the same person, just in different situations. Oh, six months. Like we do a values worksheet with all my clients and I'm like, this is not static. This could right. completely change in six months. Yeah. But I think to, to your point earlier though, as practitioners, I think sometimes we have to get a little myopic and dive into something and just buy into it and like bulldog it and just tear it apart because I want to find out all the weaknesses in my argument. I want to find out all the places that I'm wrong or potentially wrong yeah. so that I can protect against that. And I think the only way to do that is to be like, laser okay here's this tool i've learned this new tool i'm just gonna go all in on it and like work on it and then you'll be like oh actually you know, I, don't, I, don't, I, wasn't that, I wasn't that great i just spent nine months going down yeah, there but, exactly but you come from an academic background right you have an rd i think so much of our industry doesn't and i don't have an academic background but i work with a lot of academians and i do research like actual research on my own and, and do research projects and constantly doing stuff to write this book. And that forces me to understand things from that lens of you might, there's, I know people who spent five years doing a PhD to only find out that their entire premise was null. <laughs> yeah. Mike T almost didn't get his PhD because he kept getting null findings on his research and he almost ran out of time. Crazy. Because and he's, he's well, I'm not going to fudge the data. And they were basically like, you should just fudge the data. Yeah. Just fudge the data. <laughs> just get it published so we can get this thing done. Yeah. He's like, I'm not going to do that. But that's it. So I think for us, it's important. Yeah, if you spend six months on something that like, doesn't pan out, great. But yeah. that's just part of the deal. Hey, man, it's all part of building, like you said, building that toolbox. I even think on a much lower level scale. That's why I don't hate some of these fad diets and stuff for because they teach you things. So you do a paleo diet for a while. Yeah. is it, Are you going to be able to live with it? Probably not. You're going to pick up some pretty cool tools along the way, though, that you can carry forward. If you want to try low carb or whatever it is, a whole 30, I don't know. Try it. Take the like, stuff you like. Bring I like it to, forward. I have to crap on. I've always crapped on paleo a little bit. But aside from like the grass fed, yeah. you know, those things. But honestly, I don't eat. I eat rice. Maybe that's not paleo. But other than that, it's like I eat meat, vegetables. Like I. Well, you know, but again, back to my friend Ben House. He got the great quote of sooner or later, everything becomes cupcakes, though. They make <laughs> once they started making paleo cookies. <laughs> Yeah, the, the diet doesn't work. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, when you're eating vegan, but yeah, you're just That's the problem. Those vegan junk food vegan desserts are good, man. And I tried to fight it, but I have a bunch of vegan friends, and they're like, <laughs> "Come on, come to this vegan bakery," and I'm like, "It's gonna suck." And then I'm like, "Oh yeah, no, it doesn't. It's really good." That's, that's the problem. Yeah, it doesn't matter what you're trying to do. It doesn't matter if you're trying to do a diet, if you're trying to eat organic. You know what? Yeah. There's, there's junk no matter where you want to find yeah. it. Someone will make it for you. So yeah, man, that's a, that's absolutely right. Tell as we start to wrap this up here, I know. Time's, we've been going a while. Tell us about the book you've been mentioning. I'm super curious to know about this and obviously let the listeners know when it's going to be out and where they can find it. We've been working on it for a while. It's, the problem <laughs> with three authors is A, we have to make it all sound like there's continuity to it and B, but I'm writing a book with my good friends, Dean Guido and Dr. Mike T. Nelson. It's about, we see, about the value we see in walking. We really have found that we have a lot of research to back us up too, is that, that walking is a secret weapon and not just in health. We've seen a couple of meta-analyses come out in the last year or two that have shown a linear dose response between steps and life expectancy and all-cause mortality. Like it's pretty amazing from a health aspect, but in terms of weight, which is most of our audience is going to be concerned about weight maintenance, weight loss. We found that excessive step counts really moderate weight pretty well. We've actually found evidence and i'm sure any of you who've worked with ultra marathoners or iron man triathletes people who train like excessive hours like 
they all, the tool with them is just like, oh, you just need to eat more. Literally it fixes everything. You need to eat more. Yeah. And so we, it's about high flux. This idea that high energy in equals higher energy out it allows you to eat more food. It allows you to live in this environment a little bit better. So we're hoping to have that thing wrapped up here pretty soon and getting out to publishing. So nice. it just kind of depends on the publishing rotation when they're able to get it out, but we're almost there. It's been a labor of, it's, it, well, it's not really my project. <laughs> Because I didn't really care about walking until we started doing, but I got roped in and now it's become a thing. So yeah, but that should be out soon. Perfect. Hopefully. Man. Yeah. Yeah. When it is, I'll make sure I put it up on, on my site or whatever for people to grab. Because I mean, that, I agree with you. Movement. It's the ultimate hack. Ultimate <laughs> hack. Yeah. That's the hack. Like no that's one, it. No one wants to eat less. Right? No. You'd no. rather do more. You'd rather do yeah. more and eat more. So you got an option. You can eat five, depending on how much you're walking, right? Five, six, seven, eight hundred, a thousand calories less and do no walking. Yeah. Or you can just walk a little bit more and you can eat all those extra calories and you nourish your body way better. You got more energy. You build muscle better. You have more nourishment, better immunity, better mental health, all these things. And all you gotta do is walk a little bit more and then you can, you don't have to feel like you can't eat all these foods and stuff that we've been talking about. But yeah, to well, me, it's the huge equalizer in the equation. And I think for you, like you're, you're actually kind of one of the outliers in the industry because strangely enough, there's not a lot of people with athletic backgrounds in this industry, like even at low level. And you played obviously at the highest levels. Everyone I know that's played high level athletics is like, Oh yeah, dude. Like I didn't pay attention to what I ate when I was like, if anything, and hockey's the greatest because you guys all drink a case of beer after a game too. And everyone's like Jack and you can fight on a one inch piece of ice skates. Like, I don't know anything about hockey. I just love, I'm obsessed with like hockey culture. Cause I think it's yeah. the coolest, but it's seriously, it's like you see, you talk to any high level athlete and it's, oh yeah, I gained 40 pounds when I quit playing. Cause I just didn't, I was like, oh wait, you mean I actually have to pay attention? But I think if there was more people in here, they would be all high flux more. You'd be like, oh yeah, no, you just have to do more shit. You have to work more. And that's where like work harder. It's a crappy thing to say to people. Cause like most people are working really hard on the things they're trying to work hard, but it's, you need to you just probably, if you want to double down your efforts and time, double it down on these things, yeah. you don't, you probably don't need to read another book or listen to another podcast about, you know, how to get your mind right. Cause you could take, or listen to that podcast while you're walking. While walking. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that, man. That's great. And I think there's tons of cool info in this one for sure. Lots of action steps and stuff for people to take just about being a little bit more mindful, a little bit more aware. Also, I like how you shifted the conversation away from it always having to be food. To Food's the byproducts. Stuff. Yeah. That's really it. Yeah. It's cool. I appreciate you being on today, man. I appreciate you. Yeah. Aside from the book, like you can, I'm on Instagram at Jeb Stewart Johnston yep. and uh, my website's foodonthemind.com. I send out a daily, daily, like short little message to everybody Monday through Thursday. So if you sign up for the email list, you get like a little tip in your inbox every morning. Perfect. All right, good. So yeah, definitely anybody listening to this, head over there, look up Jeb, make sure you get on the email list because that stuff's important. And like you said, talking all about mindset, it's good to keep this stuff top of mind every day. So yeah, you get a quick little reminder daily about paying attention to what you're doing and it's always going to be helpful. Awesome. Thanks, Jeb. Appreciate your time, buddy. Thank you. Please note that this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The information shared on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be used as a replacement for the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider. Additionally, the opinions and strategies discussed on this podcast are those of the guests and host and do not necessarily represent the views or endorsement of the podcast or its creators. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.